Numbers chapter 5 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. That is what we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at today, just those four verses as we see what sort of shape we're in as we enter 2018. The book of Numbers is the sequel to the book of Exodus chronologically. The book of uh, Numbers starts with the Israelites camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. In chapter 10 they'll leave Mount Sinai to head off to the promised land. But in chapter 13 as they're camped at Kadesh Barnea about to enter the promised land they have a crisis of faith. They don't trust God and they decide that they'd like to go back to Egypt. What then transpires is they spend 40 years wandering aimlessly through the wilderness. And the book of Numbers ends at chapter 36, with the Israelites 40 years later camped on the plains of Moab, overlooking the promised land with the Jordan in the middle and Jericho in the distance. It is a great book, but it is somewhat of a slow burner. I dare say, as we all start our Bible reading plans with earnest tomorrow, if we get through Leviticus, numbers will be the graveyard of our best intentions. I mean, it's a tough read. Chapter 1 is a census. Not many bestsellers start with a census. Chapter 2 is about the arrangements of the camp. You know, whose tent is where. Not exactly compelling stuff. Chapter 3, we have another census, but this time of the tribe of Levi. And then chapter 4, we hone in on some different bits of um, the tribe of Levi, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merizites. It is a slow burner, but it is worth it. After these censuses and maps of the camp and these specific groups of the Levites, we then get a public health warning in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, that the God of the universe gives to his people. It is a a slow burner. But I want us to see just simply three things today. That God has a practical purpose for what he says. He has a theological purpose in what he says. And he has a Christological purpose in what he says. Or if you're like me, he's going to say something about health, something about himself, and then lastly, something about his son. So join with me in the practical purpose of Numbers 5, verses 1 to 4. As we read it, it seems really quite barbaric, doesn't it? That anyone who's kind of sick or diseased or has a discharge or who has touched a dead body, to make their plight even worse and their stigma amplified, send them outside the camp. That it seems pretty barbaric at first reading the ultimate stigma. You're ill and now you're exiled. That seems pretty tough. But if we take a step back, we actually see that this is very loving, kind, caring and shrewd instruction from the God of the universe. In this scene in Numbers 5, there could be up to 2 million people living in tents, side by side, 
in a hot desert climate. This is thousands of years before Alexander Fleming and his mould and the antibiotics. What we have here in the Israelite camp is in fact a massive petri dish ready to go off and infect everyone. Any infection in this close proximity will spread like wildfire and the whole camp will be decimated as the disease takes hold. Therefore, this kind of quarantine protocol is quite a nice, practical, loving instruction from the God of the universe. It still happens today. A couple that I married in Brunsfield, um, up in Edinburgh, they went on a cruise for their honeymoon round the Mediterranean. At the port of Genoa in Italy, the cruise ship went down with the norovirus so no one could get on and no one could get off. They spent the next six days wrestling each other for use of the ensuite. Welcome to married life. It is an incredibly um, good bit of um, instruction from a kind and loving God quarantine. A few years ago we saw that in West Africa. And the Ebola crisis, we couldn't treat it, so what did we do? We quarantined people. At first reading, Numbers 5 seems quite brutal, but then when we get behind it and understand the context and the situation, this is actually kind and loving and wise advice from the God of the universe. He's telling his people how they can remain healthy in a desert camp while they make their way to the promised land. It's a good reminder, isn't it, for us as we are on the cusp of 2018 that this God who is kind and loving and wise to his people is kind and loving and wise towards us. He loves us. And he's kind. And he's conducting all things in our lives for our ultimate blessing and his ultimate glory. I don't know what 2017 was like for you. But the fact that you've got this far to be here on this night is testimony to God's loving kindness and his care in your life. Numbers 5 is a bit kind of abstract. Then if we fast forward to the New Testament and we read about Matthew 10 verse 29, God says that he counts the hairs on our head and that not one sparrow falls from the sky outside of God's care. Do you know how sovereign you have to be to say that not one sparrow dies outside of God's care? You have to know how old every sparrow is so that those that are about to fall off the end, they're clocked. You have to know where every cat is. You have to know where every teenager with an air rifle is. You have to know where every glass-laden building in London is. You have to know about every sparrow hawk, every sparrow mite. You have to know about every hunter. God says, I care so much that no one sparrow falls from the sky outside of my knowledge. And then he says, and aren't you much more valuable than many sparrows? God of the universe loves us and cares for us and he's wise and kind towards us. The testimony of 2017 is God is loving, kind and wise towards us. The testimony of 2018 will be that God is loving, kind and wise towards us. But there's way more going in on Numbers 5 than simply a public health warning from the God of the universe. And so secondly, we see that there's a theological purpose. See the repeated refrain? The word defiled is used three times 
in this passage. Anyone who has a defiling skin disease, send away male and female alike, send them outside the camp so that they will not defile the camp. What we see in this is God is saying that he's holy. That nothing defiled can come into contact with him. The number one criteria that God uses to describe himself in all of the Bible is that he's holy. He is set apart. He is pure and perfect. He, cannot, he is totally undefiled and cannot look on anything that is defiled. God is holy. And in the law of Moses, of which um, Numbers is the fourth installment of five, God tells us what sin looks like. He gives us many pictures of what it looks like. Here are some of them. The first one he gives us is transgression, literally to cross a line, to trespass. God says, do not murder. If you murder, you've committed a transgression. You've crossed a line. Secondly, he uses the the word for sin, and it literally means to miss the mark. To not live up to the standard that we were called to. To fall short. All have sinned and missed the mark of fallen short of the glory of God. And then there's the idea of iniquity. The idea of twisting of taking something good and twisting it to make it something ultimate. That's behind all idolatry, getting a good thing and making it into a God thing. Taking a good gift and worshipping it like it was God himself, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. But in Leviticus and Numbers, the word used most readily for sin is the idea of defilement, to be stained, to be dirty, to be polluted, to be corrupted and God is teaching his people that they are defiled their sin defiles them it makes them unclean imperfect unworthy to be in his presence and so in Leviticus this works out in a really interesting way in Leviticus 11 it's all about the food that you can't take into your body it tells you about which owls you can eat and which owls you can't eat Did anyone have owl for Christmas dinner? That's a few kind of social classes up from where we're currently finding ourselves. But chapters 12 to 15 of Leviticus is all about things that come out of our body. Skin diseases, baldness, discharges. And it's making this really profound theological point that sin is not so much what you take into your body, it's what comes out of your body. That it's out of men's hearts come all kinds of evil, says the Lord Jesus. Sin in our lives is not environmental out there, it's internal in here. There are always worse things going on in my own heart and mind than there are on the news or on the streets of London. And so God is saying very clearly in Numbers 5 that he is holy, holy, holy. And he's saying to us that we're not, not, not. We're unholy. We're unable to come into his presence because of defilement. Our sin defiles us. It corrupts us. Numbers 5 reminds us of God's holiness, our sinfulness and our absolute dependence on his grace and forgiveness in order that we might dwell together. Speaking at the end of the story in Revelation 21, We're told that nothing impure, nothing defiled 
will ever enter the new creation, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Numbers 5 is making a very profound theological point. And it's telling us that God is holy. But secondly, see, it's telling us that God is present, verse 3. Send away male and female alike, send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. This is astronomical stuff. This is mind-bending stuff. That Israel's God dwells among them. He dwells with them. God's people are dwelling in tents. So where is God symbolically dwelling? He's dwelling in a tent amongst them. No one else has a God who graciously condescends to be amongst his people. The greatest blessing that Israel enjoyed was not their rescue from Egypt, not their redemption, not the provision, not the forgiveness, not the promised land. The greatest blessing that Israel enjoyed is that their God dwells with them. No one else has a God like this. All the other religions of the world either have a God that's so high he seems uncaring and distant or a God so low that he's just like us so what's the point in worshipping him anyway? But the God of the Bible, the real God, this God, is a God who is so high and so lofty and yet dwells amongst his people. That's a wonderful thought. The big fear after the golden calf is that God would not dwell with them anymore. God says to Moses, you just go off and do your thing with your people. But Moses says, if you don't go with us, kill us now, because the only thing that's different about us is that our God dwells with us. He's present. And if this idea that God dwelt with them in a tent was to encourage them to holiness in their camp, how much more should the idea that God dwells with us in the person of his spirit not amongst us, but inside us, drive us towards holiness. As God transforms us from the inside out. As God builds us together to be a holy temple, worthy and fitting for him. A God who is not with us symbolically, but a God who is in us spiritually. God has a theological purpose. He's saying that he's holy. He's saying that he's present. But finally, he's spoken. I don't know if verse 4 strikes you as being unusual. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as the Lord had instructed Moses. That is radical obedience. Imagine you were in that camp. Imagine that your son, little Jimmy, had been out playing with his friends, running up and down between the tents, but he comes in and he says, Mum, Dad, I don't feel very well. And you look at him and you find that he has a defiling discharge. And you call the priest and the priest confirms it. What are you going to do with little Jimmy? hide him at the back of the tent, dig a basement that you can conceal him in? Or are you going to do what God said and send him outside the camp until such a point that the discharge clears up 
and through sacrifice he can come back in. What happens if you're having a lovely candlelit dinner with your wife in a tent? It's not very safe to have a candlelit dinner in a, with your wife in a tent. But you've got Krista Burr, the lady in red on the iPod. The lobster thermidor is ready. And just before you serve it to everyone, you take a hand. Suddenly your attention is drawn to a raised white swelling that's turned the surrounding skin white. On further inspection, you realise that the swellings go right the way up the arm. And your wife has a defiling skin disease. And this woman you love more than life itself now has to be sent away if you're going to be obedient to what God has called you to do. It's not easy, is it, obedience? It wasn't easy living in a tent in the desert. And let's be clear, it's not easy being obedient to this word in London in 2017, soon to be 2018. That this book cuts across the grain of our comfort and our lives and our ease all the time. And at every point, we're going to have a choice. It's a binary choice between obedience and disobedience. And the stellar example of the Israelites at this point in their history is that they did exactly what God had instructed through the law of Moses. I wonder if 2018 is going to be a year where we'll live by this book and do what God says and pursue him as we read about him in his word. To go for faithfulness over comfort. To go for holiness over sinful desires. I wonder when we're all back here at the end of 2018 whether this will be true of us They did just as the Lord had instructed them through his word. Let this be a year where we value and treasure and go for obedience. Because our God is holy, our God is present, and he has fully and definitively spoken in his word. And as we we love and treasure and obey the written word of God, how much more we'll love and treasure the living word of God, the Lord Jesus. What a goal that would be for 2018. There's a practical purpose. God reveals that he's kind and loving and wise. There's a theological purpose. That God said he's holy, he's present, and that he's spoken. But there's also a Christological purpose. And I think this is where it gets really exciting, if it hasn't been exciting so far problem as you read the Old Testament is there's no answer to defilement. You just identify it, send the person outside the camp and then through sacrifice, once it's cleared up, they can come back in. There's a bit of sacrifice but it's a placeholder and a sticking plaster. There's no answer to the defilement that turns up time and time again. It's identify, quarantine, bring back when it's cleared up. And this is an unhappy tension all the way through the Old Testament. But then we get to the New Testament. And we turn up in Mark chapter 1. It's the very end of Mark chapter 1. And Jesus has been on this like itinerant tour around the area of Galilee. And just at the very end of uh, Mark chapter 1, a leper runs up to him. That is not a good thing to happen to you. 
And everybody, as they see the leper, they step back. Jesus steps forward. And the leprous man who's been ostracized for his, from his community says to him, if you are willing, you can make me well. And Jesus says, I will. And he reaches out and touches him. And the defiled man doesn't make Jesus unclean. Jesus makes the defiled man clean. Such is his power and presence and cleanliness and sanctifying purpose and forgiving nature. Then a little bit later on, we get to Mark chapter 5. And Jesus is in a massive crowd, kind of like when you left Twickenham yesterday after big game 10. There's people like buffeting him from side to side. It's like a mosh pit in the Near East in the first century. And suddenly Jesus stops and says, someone touch me. And the disciples are like, he nuts, everyone's touching you. Jesus says, no, somebody touched me. And he refuses to go forward until a little old woman who's had an unclean discharge for 12 years comes very timidly forward. Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith is healed. You go in peace, be free from suffering. Jesus has nailed skin disease. He's nailed a defiling discharge. But the reason that he's in such a big crowd is because he's on a journey to Jairus' house. Jairus like the grand fromage of the synagogue. And the reason that he's come to Jesus is because his little 12-year-old girl is seriously ill. And just on the way as he comes near to the the house, it's too late. The professional mourners are there giving it loudly as they wail and wail and wail. The girl is dead. Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. You need to be pretty confident to say that to a newly bereaved Dad, as their daughter's now dead, don't be afraid, just believe. You need to be pretty sure that you can do something in this situation. And he sends everyone out and he takes a select band of disciples. And everyone's cowering on the side of the room because a dead girl will make them all unclean. They step back, Jesus steps forward. And a defiled dead body doesn't make Jesus unclean, Jesus makes a dead girl alive. By simply saying, Talitha, come, I say to you, little girl, get up. She's really up because she eats. Not many dead people are eating. Do you see all the way through? The Old Testament leaves us with this really odd scenario where defilement is recognized and banished. Wait for it to clear up, they can come back in. And the New Testament, Jesus is the answer to defilement. He doesn't make unclean people, he's not made unclean by unclean people, he makes unclean people clean. God is caring, sin is serious, but Jesus is excellent. That's what we learn in Numbers 5. So whatever we do in 2018, our only hope is that we cling to the Lord Jesus who makes an end to our defilement. Let's be clear about that. It doesn't matter what job prospects happen, whether you move house or not, whether you get a promotion at work. Actually, the best thing you can do in 2018 is cling to the Lord Jesus. 
because he brings an end to our defilements. That through faith in him, our uncleanness is cleansed, meaning that we can be a friend of God. Welcomed by him. Forgiven by him. Have an eternity with him. Wonderful news. That is real health. Coming straight from God's word through the Lord Jesus to us. But let's be clear. This puts some people in a really difficult position. Because there'll be some people on the day that the Lord Jesus returns, maybe in 2018, who when they come close to Jesus, he will banish them and send them outside the camp because of their defilement. And so Hebrews 13 says to us, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. All of us should have been sent outside the camp because we were defiled. Jesus, the only person who should remain inside the camp, went outside the camp for us. Took on our defilement and died for it in order that we could be cleansed to come in. But don't miss what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Now we need to go outside the camp to those that are defiled to tell them that their only hope is Jesus Christ. The only answer to sin, defilement, uncleanness is the Lord Jesus. And there's a real cost. But on that day, wouldn't it be a travesty if there were people in our lives who never knew that they were unclean and were never told that the only hope in all of their lives is the Lord Jesus. And so lastly, for 2018, wouldn't it be a great thing if 2018 was a year of bold evangelism? where we went to those who were unclean and said, there is a way to be clean. There's only one. And his name is Jesus Christ. Let's go to them outside the camp in order that through Jesus they might be welcomed inside the camp. God is holy, he's present, he's spoken. Jesus is excellent in our one and only hope. Let me pray. Father God, thank you that you are a loving, caring, perfect, heavenly Father. Thank you that you're wise. Thank you that you've gone ahead of us into 2018 and you will continue to work all things together for our ultimate blessing and your ultimate glory. Father, we want to trust you with the year to come. Father God, thank you that you're holy that you're splendidly holy, you're majestically holy and that makes you so worthy of our worship. Thank you that through your Son we can enjoy your very near presence. You're not a God loitering at the edge of the universe but you're a God who has dwelt amongst us and now dwells in us by your Holy Spirit. May 2018 be a year that we enjoy your presence more and more in our lives. 
And Father, we want 2018 to be a year of radical obedience where we treasure your word most and seek your face most. Lord, we don't want comfort. We don't want ease. Lord, we want to be yours and wholly yours. For that to happen, Lord, we need your help. So may this Bible become so dear to us and may obedience be the very lifeblood of our lives. And Father God, we want to finish by thanking you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came and he loved us and he lived for us and he died for us and that he rose to prove that it's all true and now he welcomes us and he cleanses us and he forgives us and he has our eternity sorted. Father, thank you for him. Lord, I pray that you would use us to tell others. To tell others about the danger they're in and the hope that there is only in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we pray this before our Father in the name of your Son and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.